Let's see if you remember what to do. He is risen. risen All right. Well, it's so good to be with you today. And I'm just so thrilled that you came Easter morning to spend it with us. For the past several weeks, we've been in a series talking about the cross that's at the center of our faith. We are people of the resurrection, but we're also people of the cross. Because you can't have resurrection without crucifixion. Isn't that right? They work together. And one of the things we're trying to look at is how is this not just a thing that happened, not just the event that happened, because most of you probably heard something about the cross. You probably heard something about there was a resurrection and a cross. But how is this true today? Like, what does this mean for us now? How is this true for us this afternoon when you leave here and you go to lunch or when you go to the Easter egg hunts or wherever you're heading to after? What about in the morning when you're headed to work or to school? How is this true then? So we're going to look at this, um, how the cross affects us right now. But first, uh, you caught a glimpse already accidentally there. I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you this picture. And uh, just so you know, when we're talking about this and we're looking at this picture, our our relationship is, is moving to new depths of intimacy and vulnerability here. Okay, but this is a safe place, I think. This is a safe place. Um, so, so here we go. Feast upon it. Um, that is me. Uh, so as you can see, uh, sailed right through puberty with really no awkward phase or anything. It really just no issues or anything. Um, I was uh, what my mom, you know, lovingly called a late bloomer. And uh, so I was like four foot 11 to like 10th grade. I was just a really shrimpy little kid, very awkward, uh, very skinny, very shy. And um, I want to tell you the story. It was about, it was eighth grade. And just for, to, to, so you feel some extra sympathy for me, in eighth grade, they, the school district had the brilliant idea of sending eighth graders to the senior high school. And so that was extra fun, uh, being eighth grade, extra small, and uh, extra skinny, extra shy, and going and being with in high school. And so that was traumatizing, and a lot of therapy helped get through that. But, so the days were not fun. The one thing I looked forward to when I was in eighth grade was going to my locker because next to my locker was this girl Cheryl's locker. And I'm not going to give Cheryl's last name in case she still lives in the community, even though it was like a hundred years ago when great lizards roamed the earth. But still, so Cheryl, I had a tremendous crush on Cheryl. She was I just thought the beautiful, she was popular, like at her locker were always like her and all the girls and her friends and they would all laugh and giggle and stuff. Just a whole world that I was not a part of. And um, of course, she was like six inches taller than me because that's another joke the universe plays on 12 year old boys is you're shorter than the girls in your grade. And uh, so I would even try to time it you know, so like we get to the locker at the same time. I couldn't say anything to her, of course, because that would be silly to try to vocalize words. It would just come out like, <laughs> so, but, uh, but I, I was there. I mean, it was just the nearness was all we needed. And, um, and, then, and then one day, I took it to the next level. I started leaving her little notes in her locker. I wrote the notes and I was, I'd say, hi, how are you? Hope you're having a good day. And then I, start, I started like putting myself out there saying, I like you, um, putting them in the note. 
they put them in the locker, uh, assuming she like knew they were from me. But, and so this went on for a little while, still never spoke to her actually. But uh, eventually one day I, feel, I felt like it was time to relate, take our relationship to the gift giving stage. And I f was at like a drugstore, Walgreens, Walmart, somewhere like that. And I found a really nice bracelet. I mean, this is a real piece of jewelry, it was like $10, $15. It was a gold looking bracelet. Um, and got it, brought it to school, had it in the little thing. Quickly realized there's no way I can hand this to her. I just can't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So I thought, um, well, I'll put it in her locker. But the lockers had the little combination locks. And I couldn't, like, break into her locker. So I thought, well, I'll take it out and I'll slide it through the grill. And it goes down. So that's what I did. I took it out. She I slid it through the grill. And I went down there. I could hear it. And, and I waited. And I thought, I'm just going to wait a little while. I don't mind waiting. I was playing the long game. I knew someday we'll probably get married and everything. But I don't mind waiting a little bit longer for her to appreciate what I've done for her. And so a couple days later, I timed it, I saw her, and so I came to the locker. This is absolutely a true story. Came to the locker and um, mustered up all of the courage in the world. And I said, um, hi. <laughs> and she said, hi? Like in that questioning tone, which is weird, because it's kind of like, why is this happening? But, but, and then I just, I laid it all on the line. I said, uh, I, I hope you like the bracelet that I gave you the other day. And she said two things that changed the course of my life from that point on. The first thing she said, as her face visibly fell and her eyes like filled with tears, was, that was you. And then I suddenly realized, like in that moment, I got a, I got a glimpse of like the hundred at least a hundred names of boys, Timmy and Robbie and Joseph and all that, that were ahead of mine, that she had already sort of like, the poor thing had fantasized that this is where this bracelet was from. And I realized I am like probably not on that list. And then the next thing she said, as her eyes are fully filling with tears was not, oh, it, it, like at her best, Valley Girl voice, because this was the 80s. Uh, not in this life or any other. And, and it's okay. I've worked through this. Obviously, I don't even hardly remember it anymore. <laughs> I appreciate your sympathy, but pff, I'm fine. I'm fine. Cheryl, if you're watching, I'm fine. Okay? Fine. It's no biggie. Um, I think that was the last time we ever spoke, but... Uh, can anybody relate to this? You put yourself out there. Some of you, some of you are being honest. You can relate. Yes. Uh, just that brutal, because it is, it's a brutal moment that when you, because uh, once you, you know, put the note in the locker, or today, once you hit send on the text, you can't get it back, right? It is out there. Once you walk up to say hi to that person, or, or, or even like, like my wife and I just the, to mustering up the courage to go next door to say hi to the new neighbors, you know, bring them a cookie or something like that. Once you do that, uh, there's something going on there. You are extending yourself to that person. Uh, you're making this invitation. You're making yourself vulnerable. Uh, you're placing the control of the whole relationship in their hands uh, because now they have a choice, right? 
They have a choice, yes or no. Uh, yes or no, or there's the third option, which is to burst into tears and, and uh, just crush your soul. But this is the stakes, right? This is the stakes that it's all, when you decide to ask that person to like you or to go on the date or to go for a coffee after work or to marry you or to come to church with you. Some of you have been through that, you know. When you do that, you could say, you could say that when you extend yourself to someone, whatever it is you're inviting them to, we're giving away the control of that relationship, right? You're handing off the control. And that person can say yes or no. They can respond with love or friendship or just nothing. In fact, to, to extend yourself to another human being, we could say is inherently risky, right? Love is inherently risky. Love's risky. And if you've been burned, if you've been betrayed or cheated on or hurt or rejected or dumped or ever raised teenagers, you know, <laughs> whew, you're putting your heart out there, right? Love is risky. And um, I think most of us know, know what I'm talking about. When you love somebody, you're putting yourself out there. Now, turn with me, if you have your Bibles today, over to uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, Philippians. Philippians, it's in the New Testament right there towards the end of the Bible. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, one of the things that we see from the very beginning in the New Testament is the scripture writers keep insisting over and over that one of the fundamental like realities of the universe is that God loves us. They say God loves us. And that's important to these scripture writers. Apparently, God is not just happy sitting up on the throne in heaven, like creating galaxies, you know, or ruling on his throne or watching the world just roll along like some kind of a Zeus figure. No, this, this God actually on an intimate level loves human beings. And make no mistake, this was a pretty outrageous claim to make back in the ancient world. You had Greek gods and Roman gods and Egyptian gods and Persian and Babylonian gods. You had all these real big, lots of big, bad, powerful gods who stomped around and they made it thunder, right? Or they just struck people dead for the fun of it. Or if they were in a good mood, they'd make it rain or something like that. They had a lot of these kind of gods. But we're told by the scripture writers that the one true God is actually not like any of these images that we came up with for 100,000 years, that this God loves people. It's, a, it's an outrageous claim. In fact, one, of the, one place the writer says that God is love. A God who is the very embodiment of love. It's un, it was unheard of. One of the reasons why this was unheard of was why this is so strange is because it presents a very simple logic problem, which is this. If you're an all-powerful, all-controlling God, well, that raises a question then, and that is how does that God actually love beings who are not equally powerful? How can an all-powerful God love beings who are not all-powerful? How do you come to people in a form? How do you extend yourself in a way that isn't based in control, on control? Because my experience is that when you love somebody, you're giving them 
control. Love is risky. You're giving them control. You're, you, when you try and control somebody, you're not being very loving, right? How many of you know somebody who's like really controlling and manipulative or something like that? They're always trying to control you. More than likely, that person is not a loving person. At least, even if they think, this is my love, it's, it's still not true love. But I guarantee you, the people that you know who are the most loving are the least controlling. Because loving people aren't controlling, and controlling people aren't really showing love. So how do you love if you can't help but be an all-powerful, all-controlling God? In Philippians, the book of Philippians, it says this. In chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So you have Jesus who is God. He's equal with God. But he doesn't consider that apparently something that he needs to grasp at, that, that he has to cling to no matter what. This God-like status. Instead, it says that Jesus made himself nothing. Now that phrase, made himself nothing, it's a, it's a hugely important phrase, especially uh, to like, uh, scholars and theologians, who, smart people who speak Greek and Hebrew, because it's, it's one word in the Greek, and that word is kenosis. Let me hear you say kenosis. Kenosis. In some of your Bibles, it might be translated that Jesus emptied himself. Kenosis. And what the big deal about this is, is that Jesus was fully God. He's, he's part of the eternally existing trinity, He's always lived in perfect unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he does something that just completely breaks our brain to imagine. He empties himself of his godness. Let's look at one other description of Jesus we have. Turn over to um, in John chapter 9. John chapter, uh, John chapter 19. So Jesus empties himself. He makes himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. So the gospel writer, John, gives us this really brutal, intimate uh, picture of Jesus on the cross. We looked a couple of weeks ago at how, uh, you know, this story of how they slapped Jesus. They beat him over the head with a club. And so in all likelihood, he's suffered skull injuries while this is going on. He's been mocked. He's been stripped naked. He ends up on a cross. He couldn't be more humiliated. And in verse 28, it says later, he's hanging on the cross. And later, knowing that everything had now been finished so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So here you have God on a cross. He's the creator of the universe. He is the word that is energy itself, the ground of all being, right? And he's hanging on a cross, tired exhausted, tortured. He's being spit on by angry soldiers. He's got blood all over him. And he says, I am thirsty. And it says a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to his lips. And when Jesus had received the drink, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
So the picture we have is of a bloodied, bruised, naked Jesus, completely helpless. He's at the point he can't even help himself. He has to rely on others to get him a drink. This is God has to rely on others to get him a drink. The God of the universe who speaks quasars and galaxies into being. He empties himself. He makes himself about as vulnerable as you can get, right, in the form of, of this young Jewish rabbi who's naked, spit on, bloodied, bruised, battered. And he has to ask some, can someone get me a drink? So back to our, our question. How do you have a love relationship, a real love relationship with someone when you are an all-powerful, all-controlling being? You give up control. You give up control. Jesus is God coming to us control-free. There's no control. It's just here I am in my naked, wounded, most helpless self. Now let's kind of drill down a little bit on this because many people would say, but God is all powerful, right? God can do anything. But on the cross, everything's different. So we could say it this way. The cross is God's way of saying, I actually can't do everything. Now, if, if that sentence kind of gives you a bit of a breakout in hives moment to, to hear that, that God can't do everything. Just calm down for a second. But God cannot make you love him. It's how he has set up the universe. He will not lobotomize you in order to turn your heart. He, he cannot make you desire him. But God can do the impossible. Yes, he can do the miraculous but he can't make you love him. For some reason, he has set up the parameters of this universe like this. For relationship with us, God says, I can't. I can't make you love me. The God of the universe can make the Grand Canyon. He can make solar systems and he can make DNA and babies and coral reefs and a thousand different kinds of fish and a thousand different kinds of colors. And he can make leaves that explode in spring and turn a million shades of orange and red and yellow in the fall. And God can make a human brain. He can make Niagara Falls. He can make people of all shapes and sizes and colors. And he can bring us hope. And he can bring us faith and love and friends. And he can create that smell, right, when your favorite tacos are being cooked. And that moment just before you hit the water when you dive in on a hot day. And God can give you your heart that beats without you even having to tell it to. But he can't tell that heart who to love. He won't. He won't. Why? Because that would be unloving, wouldn't it? You have to give up control to love. In love, you give up control. But I thought God can do everything. Yes, he can do everything, including apparently creating a universe where he can't do everything. That's how powerful he is. The cross is God's way of saying, I'm extending myself to you. I give myself to you. I'm making the first move. I'll pursue you. I'm passionate about you. I want, I want to know you, but I won't force myself into your heart because love is inherently risky. It just is. Human beings are a huge risk for God because some of them may say no 
Some of them may say, I don't want to know you. I don't want to walk with you. God, I don't want to be close to you. I don't want to seek your ways. I don't desire you. I won't love you. I don't want to serve you. I don't want to worship you. The cross is God's way of saying, I can make your heart, but I can't make it beat for me. The cross is God's way of saying, I'll give you feet to walk on, even if those feet lead you away from me. The cross is God saying, here I am. I've allowed myself to be completely vulnerable, stripped bare, emptied of power and control for you. And so to be a Christian is to be filled each day with a sense of a desire to say, yes, God, I want to know you more. I want to walk with you. To follow Christ is to answer God's invitation with a yes. Because this is the kind of God we celebrate. This is the kind of God we have. It's a God who pursues but never controls. Right? Jesus is the one. He died for his friends. Right? He even, and even when they abandoned him, if you remember the story, they all abandoned him at, the, at, at his trial and his crucifixion. They all leave. And what does he do when he rises from the dead? After the resurrection, he shows up on a beach and cooks him some fish. He's still putting himself out there, right? He's still giving away the power. He's still giving away the control in the relationship. He's still risking rejection from them for the sake of love. Here's a God who's willing to go to the greatest extremes, the most vulnerable limits imaginable to show us his love and save us from our sins and reconcile us to him because he knew that we can never make the first move. He knew that. This is the gospel. This is the good news. See, the gospel is not the story of a God who doesn't really like you and would really like to punish you if Jesus would just let him. That's kind of the picture that some of us get. The gospel is the story of a father who has never stopped loving you. Amen. I've got something I want to show you today. Um, there's a, a way to... Uh, tell about the gospel. It's called the gospel in chairs. And uh, I first saw this from a pastor uh, named Brian Zahn. He first got it uh, years before that from some theologian who got it from somebody else who, who got it. I think it was invented by some Orthodox priests years and years and years ago. But anyway, today I want to present this to you. And what we're going to do is uh, go over some of the details of the gospel visually twice. Okay. The first time through, I want to highlight some key aspects of one version of the gospel that many of us are going to be familiar with. We'll have heard this before in churches or if you've been around and heard the gospel before. And there is much beauty and there's much truth in this version of the gospel. But there's also some things that can be misunderstood, misrepresented in it. And so we're going to do it a second time. We're going to make a couple of tweaks because I think we can do a better job. We can do a more biblical job. All right. Are you ready? Here we go. Here we go. This is the gospel in chairs. <laughs> Round one. In the beginning, God creates the world. And he creates mankind in his image and in his likeness. And the God who is love wants nothing more than to have a face-to-face -face loving relationship with his image bearers. But God who is love, he knows that love is a choice. Love is risky. And so he invests us with the actual ability to choose whether 
to continue in a face-to-face relationship, loving relationship with God, or to go our own way. And we chose to go our own way. We turned our back on God in the garden and on into the story of Cain and Abel, the story of Israel. We chose the way of sin over the way of God. And God is a holy and righteous judge. He's too holy and pure to look upon sin. And so God turned his back to us so that we were now under the condemnation and the wrath of God, who is the source of life. And so ever after, human beings have just devolved into this pit of of sin and despair. But God is not just a holy, righteous judge. He's also a God of love. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to come to earth and to become one of us. And so Jesus becomes one of us, and he lives as a perfect human being. And he reveals what a perfect human being should look like. And in his perfection becomes the perfect sacrifice for us. So that eventually on the cross, Jesus bears all the sins of the world. He takes on our sin. And not only that, he takes on the wrath of God. And so having paid the ultimate price, Jesus dies. And then he rises from the dead. And in so doing, Jesus not only turns our hard hearts back to look to God for salvation, but he changes the heart of the Father toward mankind. So God, having now vented his wrath on Jesus, can now relate to us in mercy because a price has been paid releasing God to forgive the gospel, round one. Did you see anything there that was familiar? Something some of you have probably recognized if you've grown up with this. But I think we can do a little bit better job, okay? So we're going to try it again. I'm going to make a couple of little tweaks of my own here. Let's see. In the beginning, God creates the world and he creates mankind in his image And God, being a loving God, wants nothing more than to have a face-to-face loving relationship, an intimate relationship with his image bearers. But he knows that love is a choice. And so he invests us with the choice to make, to decide, do we want to continue in that face-to-face loving relationship or do we want to go our own way? And mankind goes his own way. We turn our back on God there in the garden and in Cain and Abel and throughout the story of Israel. We make the choice to go our own way. And having made that choice, God pursues us. He came after us in the garden. He came looking for Cain even after he killed Abel. He said, I will protect you from the vengeance of others. He came looking for the children of Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt. And when the people of Israel said, no, we reject you, he said, then I will give you laws to guide you. And I'll show you the way home. And when we said, no, we prefer the golden calf, God said, then I will send you prophets to teach you and to show you the way. And we rejected the prophets and we said no. We tried to kill them. And when we found ourselves being taken away into exile, stolen by foreign nations, 
God said, then I will once again come and rescue you so that you will know that I am the God who loves you, not just within your own borders, but I will pursue you throughout the ends of the earth. And we said no over and over and over. We said no to his way of love, choosing the way of fear and the way of pride and death. Until finally God did the unthinkable. He came and became one of us. He became a human being to heal our humanity. He took on our nature to heal our nature. He came to earth as a perfect human being, not since Adam had the universe seen a perfect human. And this one was strange, right? He taught us how to love, not just ourselves, but to love our neighbors. And not just that, but to love our enemies. And he didn't judge and condemn sinners, but he welcomed everyone who felt like they were outside of the arms of God. There was a woman who had departed from the way and she had been caught red-handed in the act of adultery and the religious leaders of the day had drug her out into the street, drug her out of the house. They were ready to stone her and they threw her at the feet of Jesus to see what he would say. And God knelt down beside her and said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. There was a man who was so overcome by the forces of evil He was possessed with a legion of demons. He had been kicked out of his town. He was forced to live in a graveyard. He he lived with no clothes on. He cut himself from head to toe like a madman. And God sails across the Sea of Galilee and says, I've come just to see you and to set you free. And he delivers the man from all the darkness and all the demons. And the man finds himself sitting at the feet of Jesus, gazing up into his eyes, fully clothed and in his right mind. There was a woman by the well. She was a Samaritan. She was an outcast from the other Israelites. And just through the course of her life, she had gone from man to man to man and still knew nothing but loneliness and rejection. She had been in five marriages that had ended and She was an outcast in her own town, and she said, I can't even believe you're talking to me. And he said, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to reveal myself to you as the water of life that you are thirsty for. I love you. And when we did the unthinkable and we turned our back on this man in the worst way possible, we betrayed him. And we tortured him and we beat him and whipped him and we crucified him. What does the God of the universe say just with his dying breath? But I forgive you. And he descends into death itself. Where all humankind is fated to go eventually. But this God is greater than the grave. And he will pursue us to any depths needed, right? Any depths needed. And now there is nowhere where this God is not because this God is love. He has always been the father who runs out of the house and runs down the road waiting for the prodigal son to come home. But he's also the God who says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And in my hands, I hold the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And anyone who will just trust in me can walk by my side in this life and the next. This is a picture of the great love that God has for us. But it doesn't quite end there. Because God not only promises to be God with us, he desires to be the God in us and to live in us and us in him. He gives us his Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead on that first Easter Sunday, dwells within us. And together, we do life. This is very, very good news. This is, this is the beautiful gospel. There's a, a passage in the Psalms that says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. That's a picture of pursuit. His goodness and his mercy will follow you and follow you. Right? God is not a control freak, but he is a bit of a stalker. <laughs> the cross is God's message to us that says, I can't make you love me, but I'll pursue you to the ends of the earth until you do. If, if you're sitting here today and you feel like God's spirit is tugging on you to take that first step toward Jesus, now is a fantastic opportunity to say yes. It's just saying yes, because God has given everything for us to invite us into this love relationship with him. And if you would say yes to Jesus today, there's really no simpler way than just to pray a simple prayer to him. Here's a prayer on the screen. This is a simple prayer. There's nothing magical in it. But it's just something you can pray with me today. What I'm going to do is ask everyone here, even those of you who are believers, to say this prayer with us in solidarity with those who are saying it for the very first time. And, and look, if that's not where you're at yet, no worries. Don't pray. We never want to force you into some kind of meaningless liturgical, you know, uh, ritual. But for those of you who are ready to say yes to Jesus today, yes to resurrection, yes to transformation, yes to life and love and relationship, can we all pray this together right now? Can we do that? Let's do it. Dear God, today I say yes to your invitation to experience eternal life with you. Thank you for Jesus who died on the cross for us and rose from the grave. Help me to leave my sin behind, dead and buried, and to grow into the real me you've created me to be. Cleanse my heart, fill me with your spirit, and teach me how to live and love like Jesus. Today, I am a new creation, and the old is passed away. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we're going to conclude our service by partaking of communion together. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, no matter what denomination you're from, you are a brother or a sister to us. However long you've been following Jesus, whether for 50 years or literally for 30 seconds, if you're a follower of Jesus, 
You're one of our family, and we want you to feel totally welcome to celebrate communion with us. As you're getting your communion elements ready, I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you, Jesus. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Thank you, Jesus. Can I pray for you before we go? If you'll bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, it is overwhelming to me when I get a, a glimpse of the breathtaking beauty of your love. That you would go to such depths to show us how much you love us, to capture our hearts. And God, I pray for all of the brothers and sisters here today who may have grown up thinking of you as a God of anger, of control, a God of judgment and condemnation. Lord, please show them what your heart is like. Show us the Messiah on a cross, offering himself to us, and the Messiah risen again, conquering death, hell, and the grave. Today, God, we answer your invitation by saying yes. Whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, we say yes to you daily, Lord God. We want our hearts to beat like yours, Lord God. We want to love others the way you love them. We want to pursue you because we understand that you have never stopped pursuing us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for this shocking, offensive, subversive cross that just turns upside down all of our notions of what power looks like. Today, we thank you, Lord, for dying, and we celebrate your being raised from the dead so that we can live with you forever. We praise you for all of this, Lord Jesus. We thank you, God. Come, Holy Spirit. In the name of the crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, all of God's people said, Amen, amen. Will you stand to your feet with me this morning? Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance and his favor upon you in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.